This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Case of the Sun Wing pilot who was found passed out and by the controls in the cockpit in Calgary. He's going to be in court today. The uh, latest in the case, there, there are the legalities of this, which obviously will roll themselves out in the passage of time. We get that. But I think the far greater story here is a certain unease and, and, and angst that it's causing uh, with those who tend to fly. Now, I have mentioned in the past, I, I don't fly that often. Uh, once, twice a year, maybe, uh, if that. Uh, I'm a, a nervous flyer, to be frank. I mean, I, I'm okay when I'm up there. It's not like I go crazy or anything, but I'm a little uptight about it. Always have been. And when I hear stories like this, uh, it, it only exacerbates the frustration. Uh, I, I think I told our listeners the story earlier in the, in the, in the springtime. We, we went over to Scotland and uh, had a wonderful time. The flight both there and back was, was great, no problems at all. The staff on, on, on the plane were just incredible. But uh, we uh, flew out of Glasgow to get back home. And uh, it was the very next day, just after we got back here and I got back to work, was the story of the two pilots, both pilot and co-pilot from a, a plane that were flying into Glasgow, that were totally inebriated and had to be pulled out of the cockpit. And this is not the first time this has happened. This may be the first time this Sunwing pilot has been found intoxicated, but it raises an awful lot of questions about what policies are in place and what safety standards are in place for people who fly us all over the place. I mean, you're 30,000 feet up in the air. There's, in many cases, 200, 300 people on board these things. You like to think that the people in the cockpit are sober and capable, and, and this raises some questions about that. To talk about this, we're pleased to welcome Keith Mackey to the program from Mackey International. And uh, Keith, first of all, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Let me let me ask you right up front. I mean, I, I understand these are isolated incidents. They, it's not as if everybody who gets behind uh, into a cockpit and gets behind the wheel and, and starts driving these things is intoxicated. But it does raise some serious questions, and, and we can get into some of the specifics about the Sunwing situation. But I, I also want to have a much broader discussion about what policies are in place. And my first understanding here, Keith, is that this the policies and, 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 and the standards differ, really, between Canada and the United States. That's very true. In the United States, we have mandatory drug and alcohol testing for all pilots that operate uh, with commercial operations, airlines, and even small charter outfits have to be uh, drug and alcohol tested. Uh, the, the situation is that they're uh, pre-employment tested. They're then tested on an annual basis, and they're random tested, and they're post-incident tested if anything happens uh, that could be construed as an incident, the entire crew is drug and alcohol tested. In Canada, well, there's there's a myriad of things going on here. As, as we found out, uh, Sunwing officials up here are, are suggesting that it's illegal in Canada to do mandatory or full and random drug testing. Uh, the uh, federal government agency that's responsible for this uh, responded. Our, uh, our sister station at Global Television News actually did some investigation on this, Keith and uh, found out that it is not. The federal government says there is no specific provision in the Canada Labor Code addressing alcohol to drug testing in the workplace, so it's not a federal policy. It's not a charter of rights and freedom policy. This is really, I guess, a, a policy that varies from airline to airline. Well, that's very true. Uh, apparently, some wing had some difficulty with the union not wanting them to drug test. I, I don't know about that. It should be investigated. But in the United States, of course, it's mandated by the FAA, so it's above and beyond the control of any carrier. And, and there have been problems like this in the past, Keith. I mean, you know, the National Football League, Major League Baseball, I mean, any, any organization like that that has tried to institute random testing or mandatory testing, there has always been a pushback from the players' unions in those situations. That's fine. Those are people that are playing professional sports. But, but lives are at stake here, which, which is why the FCC, I think, has really put their foot down. Well, that, that's true. Of course, our blood alcohol limit for pilots in the U.S. is half the Canadian limit. It's .040. Now, we have the same rules that that's eight hours from bottle to throttle, and you shall not be under the influence of any drug or alcohol when you fly. How, how effective is it? Is it working down there? Do you find that, that there are incidents like what we had with this Sunwing pilot? Or has, has, have the, the mandatory and the, the drug testing that's gone on there, have, have they been effective enough to, to basically minimize uh, the, any, any chance of this happening? Well, I think so. I mean, there's certainly uh, professional standards. Uh, uh, people would uh, not certainly want to be caught up in a situation like this. 
And like anyone else, any other profession, a pilot occasionally likes to have a drink. Uh, there have been programs where alcohol's gotten out of control with a particular individual, and they're put in a program, uh, effectively a dry-out program, before they can fly again. And many people complete this program and fly successfully without ever having another drink for the rest of their lives. So it's been quite successful here, I think. The other element that I think is very key to this, and you mentioned this just a second ago, is the blood alcohol level. Uh, my understanding is that the, 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 the standard for Canadian pilots, uh, at least on this side of the border anyway with Canadian Airlines, is the same as, as, as for me, the getting behind the wheel of my car. It's point zero eight. Uh, it's a much stricter standard down in the United States, so clearly they understand that there's a there's a difference between simply driving your SUV after you've had a couple of beers and getting on an airplane and flying people from coast to coast. Exactly, and that's why this is done. Uh, in we, fact, uh, he would have been six times over the U.S. limit two hours after he was removed from the cockpit, so that uh, that's uh, pretty drunk. The other side to this, too, and, and again, we can relate this to the Sunwing situation, Keith, is that uh, they say it's pretty much on an honor system. It's up to the, uh, I guess, to the flight crew to make the determination that everybody who's on that particular flight is, is up to standards and ready to go, that there is no testing done, you know, at the airport or by agencies or anything else. That, that's, that, that seems a little, a little tenuous, a little fly-by-nightish, if you'll excuse the bad metaphor. Well, uh, that may be true. Uh, I understand that in Russia a number of years ago, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but pilots had to be uh, breathalyzer tested before they could get on the airplane. Now, they may have had more of a problem over there, but uh, that's not done in the West, as far as I know, anywhere. But this this incident, though, has raised this discussion and raised that element of, of, of the debate about whether or not there should be mandatory testing before these guys even get on the plane. Uh, as it is right now, as you mentioned, the random basis. Uh, right now, the testing that uh, our, 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 parent, our global company, our global news company, found out is that uh, testing can be done on a random basis for employees who hold safety-sensitive positions. These are the federal regulations. Uh, they say also for what they call reasonable cause, where an employee reports for work in an unfit state and there is evidence of substance abuse. After a significant incident or incidents that occurred that is, uh, the uh, employee's actions or omissions may have contributed to an incident or accident. But these are, it, it seems to me as if a lot of these things are reactionary as opposed to being proactive on this, Keith. Well, I would think so. And uh, you've just described two incidents in the last few months that should draw attention to the problem. So where do we go from here? I mean, you know, the, as I mentioned in, the, in my beginning, whatever happens to this individual from Sunwing, uh, that, 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 that's the legal debate and the legal argument. But the, the greater question here is, is, is this a, a, a clarion call for us to relook at the standards that we're using here uh, for people that, that fly airplanes across the country? Well, I think it would be a good idea, and this is my opinion, for Transport Canada to uh, follow the rules that the FAA has put in place and uh, set up drug alcohol testing programs. That certainly uh, can't do any harm. Uh, there's a little of expense involved, but uh, the, uh, the trade-off is probably well worth it. Well, what, what about this idea that, that everybody that, that, that goes to fly a plane should actually have to blow into a breathalyzer before they get on the plane? They're, they're, now, that may seem extreme to some people, but I'm hearing it more and more, and I'm seeing an awful lot of comments on social media over the last 24 hours, Keith, that, uh, that may, as, and again, there's an expense to that, and it may be considered drastic in some circles, but at least there would be some level of security and comfort to know that, uh, okay, the people that are there, they're not intoxicated. Because this is not the first time we've heard these stories. I mean, we talked about a couple of incidents. My my experience, well, it wasn't mine, but I mean the one in Scotland, and of course this one in Calgary just a couple of days ago. But other publications over the years, Keith, have uh, have have done investigative reporting about you know pilots that are, are banging back a couple of quick Jack Daniels out of those little you know mini bottles they used to have on the plane. So I mean, this is this is not a new problem, is it? Well, I've never heard of that, frankly, and I found uh, in my career. Uh, most everyone is very professional, and uh, I've never had an occurrence where I've had another pilot on my crew report uh, under the influence that I could detect anyway. So, nonetheless, these these they are, are occurring, and, and the fact that there's one, I mean, it's, it's the same old adage. I mean, one is one too many, isn't it? Well, that's true, uh, and the, the breathalyzer might be a solution if they're 100% accurate, but if you... Uh, took some mouthwash or something and were flagged for having 
been drunk or had alcohol in your breath, uh, that, that we could create sensations there where we had false positives. So I think it all has to be looked at uh, with the overall picture in mind. And I really think that the drug alcohol testing program uh, and the, the knowledge that people would have that they may be random tested uh, probably would be a step in the right direction and avoid some of the other areas where using a breathalyzer might create problems since it isn't commonly done now. Keith, what about, you mentioned the uh, the eight-hour bottle-to-throttle uh, policy, and that's the same in Canada as it is in the United States. Uh, does that need revision, or are you, are you comfortable with that? Well, it also goes on to say that you shall not be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So you've got two limits there. Uh, if some people can drink something uh, nine hours before a flight, and because of the amount that they consumed and their body weight, size, and that sort of thing, they can uh, uh, not have that much blood alcohol in their system, and other people can't. So it becomes a, a personal thing with individuals' capacity and tolerance for this sort of thing. The, but, you know, we want to avoid anyone being under any influence in addition to not having had a drink in eight hours. The uh, the the concern here, obviously, is is, is safety going forward, and and uh, maybe, as you mentioned, Transport Canada may have to look at what the FCC has done here. And, and the, the fact is, it seems to me, from the investigation that our global news team has done here uh, on this side of the border about this incident in Calgary, is that uh, is that the policies, such as they are here in Canada, seem to be a lot more of a patchwork operation as opposed to a, an FCC edict that basically says this is going to be the policy for everybody. It seems to be what, what, the, what the FCC is doing south of the border seems to be a lot more effective. Well, I think it is, and I think that uh, Transport Canada needs to address the issue, and perhaps now that we've had several incidents, that they may look more closely at doing that. But we've got other concerns here. This pilot was Eastern European. He was apparently on loan or uh, on contract from another airline over there, and I'm not sure how that works. Airlines have their own cultures, and you, if you fly for Air Canada, you're going to do things differently than if you suddenly go to work for WestJet. You're going to have to be retrained. So I'm not sure uh, what cultural transference there was about alcohol and drinking. That will certainly have to be looked at. That would be one of the questions I would have. Uh, there's a, a lot of questions that this incident brings up and not that many answers yet. What about, what about the overall safety level of, in, in airline travel right now? I mean, there there has been downsizing. There have been amalgamations between airlines. There have been cutbacks in, in expenses. Uh, and, and, and there's some concern has been raised over the last little while uh, about airline safety. We've had a couple of near misses over the uh, the air a little while ago. We had two on the on the ground. I, I don't know if you heard in Pearson Airport in Toronto uh, just the other day, actually. The, the two wings touched and no severe damage, but, I mean, those sorts of things aren't supposed to happen either. Uh, what about the level of efficiency of those that are flying and, and those flight crews right now? Are you comfortable with what's happening, Keith? Well, it's extremely safe. It's an extremely safe way to travel. And, of course, because it's so safe, any relatively minor incident, like touching wingtips, is brought to light quickly, and uh, it, it becomes in the public domain and public knowledge, so people become aware of it, and perhaps it uh, causes more fear than it should. I mean, airline travel is extremely safe, much safer than driving or traveling by any other means. With the computerization age, and that, of course, has had an impact on air travel as well, uh, is, is there a, a, an almost a, a, a different feeling with aircraft control teams right now, with, with the, the teams that are up there flying, pilot, co-pilot, etc., uh, that the plane can, as, as one individual told me a couple of years ago, almost fly itself, so we, we don't have to be as cognizant or be aware of that sort of thing. Is, is there a, almost a flippancy that, that might develop with some people? Well, I wouldn't call it a flippancy, but I, uh, and this is a, another subject that we could talk about extensively, we're automating a lot of things. Yeah. Basically, uh, there's no reason now why the airplane couldn't fly itself from point A to point B. And there's been some talk about on some over-ocean cargo flights being able to dispatch them with only one pilot on board who would monitor the system. So I, I think we're headed more and more into the world of automation and aviation. Are you comfortable with that? Well, uh, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the uh, 
the systems yet, but you know we're getting into self-driving cars now, and driving a car with an autopilot is orders of magnitude more complicated than flying an airplane with a, a computerized control system. Well, so we, I think that eventually we're going to head that way. We, we've got come a long way from those old uh, movies from the 1950s, haven't we? When the, the you know the <laughs> where the flight attendant has to take over the controls and somebody in the tower is trying to get them to land. I mean, it's all computerized right now. It's a different <laughs> world. I, I don't know if I'm any more comfortable with this, though, Keith. Well, uh, you know, back in the old days, uh, the pilots would fly everything manually, and you'd go out and make four or five instrument approaches a day, all hand-flown, and you got pretty darn good at it. You, uh, you could really fly that airplane well. But now, many airlines require that the pilots not do that, that they couple the uh, approach to the autopilot, and the autopilot actually makes the landing. Now, that takes the pilot out of the loop. You don't get the practice and experience that you used to get. You get very good at operating the autopilot and the automation, but it's a trade-off. You, you begin to lose hand-flown skills, and the industry has to deal with that. It's something that's... Uh, been prevalent for a long time. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. So optimistic about 2017 here when it comes to Hamilton's economy and with startups. Well, it's because of the track record that was established in 2016, uh, which uh, one individual calls the biggest year in history for Hamilton's growing tech sector. Kevin Brown joins us. He's the founder of Software Hamilton, a software instructor with Mohawk College and a partner and chief learning officer at the CoMotion Group. And uh, we're uh, pleased to have Kevin on the Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML to talk about that. Morning, Kevin. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Uh, Happy New Year. Great to have you with us here today. Uh, I love talking about good news stories, and and, and I was so glad that that, that you were able to join us today. I've got an inkling of this over the last couple of years, uh, Kevin, as... Uh, I've talked to a number of the finalists in the Lions Lair competition and some of the, the startups and some of the innovators, and, and you start to wonder when you start to see some of these success stories is, okay, when does this actually become what they call momentum and, and, and a real push? And it seems as if we're just about at that stage now here in Hamilton. Definitely. I mean, one of the biggest ways that more mature technology industries will measure themselves is by the amount of funding that their companies get and the exit. So when companies sell their company to another company, um, and we had some big funding, some big exits last year, which is a great, you know, kind of milestone showing the amount of progress that's happened. So a company, Vizia in Waterdown sold for 21 million, Mabel's Labels sold for 12 million earlier in the year. Um, And on the funding end, we had a company, Sinos, that does some data center technology startup work. They were able to raise uh, $2.3 million this year. So um, those sorts of figures in the millions and tens of millions of dollars uh, in terms of funding exits, that shows great progress in our technology industry. And we'll get into the tech side of things, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Mabel's label situation. I got to know Julie Cole, one of the co-founders over the years, because she, she was one of the original winners of the Lions Lair competition, of course, uh, in cooperation with the, the Innovation Park and McMaster and, 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 of course, Mohawk College. And uh, and Julie and I would hook up just about every year during the competition because she'd come back and, how's the business doing? Oh, we're doing this now, we're doing this. Then, of course, we found out late last year that uh, they sold the business for $12 million. And uh, so I, I was kidding her, and I said, well, I guess you're retired now. I said, ah, I'll take a few months off. But what's fabulous about stuff like this, though, Kevin, is somebody like Julie and, and her partners in this enterprise, they've sold a company, but they're already starting on something else. I mean, the people that are, are of that mind and, and of that intellect – uh, can't just sit still. They're gonna. They, she'll come back and she'll start doing something else now, won't she? Definitely. And and one thing you said, you kind of see too is uh, a lot of these people that sell their companies. I mean, the company stays in the town, generally speaking, because this is where it's, it's been established and whatnot. But a lot of times, those people, in addition to starting additional ventures themselves, they'll act as funders to the next wave of startups coming up, and mentorship as well. In terms of they've been through the whole uh, cycle of getting a company funded to selling it, and they know how to mentor somebody through that path themselves. So that's another key thing that you get when you get these companies exiting, you get that next uh, generation of uh, potential funders and mentors. Kevin, I want to spend a few minutes talking about maybe what we should call the uh, the mentoring infrastructure that's been set up here in the city over the last number of years, because we, we would look with, with great envy at the Silicon Valley and, and, and even what happened in the Ottawa Valley some years ago with, with some of the tech stuff that was going on there, and there have been other centers of excellence that have cropped up, and we're always thinking, boy, I wish we could do that here. Uh, but you can't 
sustain it unless you've got that support infrastructure. And and I mentioned the Innovation Park right across the road from us here on, on Longwood Road here in the west end of the city, and that's certainly part of it. But but uh, but partnerships are a big part of that too, aren't they? Definitely. I mean, uh, when Innovation Factory started up, you know, six or seven years ago now it was, uh, that was a huge piece of infrastructure to get that mentorship going in the community because they've got this, you know, volunteer network of entrepreneurs that put in their, uh, you know, their spare time into helping these companies grow. And another key part of the infrastructure is the Forge, the yeah. student accelerator. What's what's key there is it's, got, it's, it's students that are coming right out of McMaster and Mohawk and that with their startups and uh they're most in need of mentorship and to have that connection right there in the McMaster Innovation Park and to cycle through Innovation Factory's list of mentors through that has been, uh, has been great to see. How, what, what, what role do they play and how important is that? Uh, because there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, where we, we had brilliant people from, you know, graduating from McMaster, graduating from Mohawk, uh, and that were coming up with some pretty innovative ideas. But they take their ideas and their concepts uh, someplace else and figure, I, I, I need to grow it somewhere else. They're staying here now. Why is that happening? Well, that's yeah, that's a great point. And the exciting thing about the Forge, really, and, and what's happening is that, yeah, in the past, a lot of students would do their co-ops and their internships where there was the jobs in Waterloo and Toronto and that in the, in the technology industry. But what's happening now is that students are looking at starting their own company as they did co-ops and internships back in the day. So it's considered, you know, a respectable, interesting thing to do to start a company for your internship or to start a company after you graduate instead of uh, jumping right into an internship. So because of that and because we've got the infrastructure in place with the Forge and with Innovation Factory and the whole Innovation Park, um, that's encouraging them to stay. And that's been a big, big changer. The other thing, too, is just the local industry itself is growing. So we've got... Lots of web agencies that hire these people, and we've now got a lot of uh, product firms that are hiring these these uh, students right out of school as well. So some of it's just the local growth of the industry as well that they're mopping up this talent instead of it getting stolen away uh, to other regions. Are, are we at the stage right now where we're starting to attract some of those bright minds and some of those bright ideas that, that maybe were not here for initially but decided, hey, there's something going on here in Hamilton? Definitely. Well, I mean, the, uh, the founder of you know, he was able to get you know, $2.3 million dollars and he said, you know, I left a great job in Toronto to move to Hamilton because of the ecosystem here. So, and that's just, you know, one story. There's other stories of people uh, moving their company from Toronto in recent years, like Seth McClarty and Reefficient. Um, uh, SHG Studios is another one that moved from Toronto to Hamilton. So there's lots of stories over the years now of, of people taking advantage of the fact that Hamilton has momentum and typically also lower costs. And Moving over here to take advantage of that. So we are at that point now where we can actually attract firms as well. And uh, the biggest one, obviously, is IBM. Yeah, obviously, with their affiliation with Hamilton Hill Sciences. Uh, and, and, but it just seems as if success attracts success. And, and, and people within the industry or people that want to get into the industry uh, seem to be looking at this area right now, Kevin, as, as a place to, to, to actually to grow a business. And, and to, you know, not just in the initial stages, but to see it flourish here. Definitely. And it's just because uh, the, the infrastructure is in place, the talent here, and the people that are willing to move here and take advantage of it can, can do that. Talk to me about the importance of, uh, uh, you mentioned about some of the support agencies, and, and, and of course, you know, the Innovation Factory over at Innovation Park is great, and the Forge are fabulous, but I want to talk about the educational institutions themselves and, and how they have grown over the years, uh, you know, we used to work here in silos. In other words, Mohawk would do their thing, McMaster would do their thing, and and you know, and and God bless them. You know, they, they were both successful in their own right. But it just seems as if the, the the collaboration that's going on right now, and and the the new programs and the innovative programs that both institutions are offering right now, seem to have made a huge difference here. Yeah, the word people are using to describe our technology industry and our community is collaboration, actually, is that we're kind of still small enough here that we can all work together and all kind of know, you know, what's going on across the board. Um, and, and, yeah, there's a lot of kind of efforts to, like, pierce silos and to break up the silos and to let things flow from one thing to another. So another thing that, you know, is an example of, you know, you know breaking up silos would be Mohawk College. We've got this medic technology access center for digital health and that's kind of the the first you know digital health technology access center in this area and their whole purpose is to help companies help small businesses uh with uh, digital health problems break into that sector because they've got you know years of expertise in this area they know all the regulatory burdens they have relationships across the board 
So companies moving into Hamilton, say, or even just in this broader region that want to work in the digital health space, Mohawk College sort of has that infrastructure now with this uh, technology access center for digital health to help these companies get into that sector. And there's just a great team up there that's got years of expertise uh, at doing this. And to be able to leverage that and to be able to partner with the colleges and work across silos like that is, is, is huge. We've, as I mentioned, had innovation in the past, and, and there were some great things in, in the medical field and medical research and technology and, and in automotive research, too. And, and by the way, I'm just, I, I mean, I'm a Mohawk grad myself, and I'm just starting now to learn about some of the work that's gone on in things like automotive technology and medical technology uh, between Mohawk and McMaster University. And it's, it's world class, and, and those in those businesses seem to know it, but now the greater community seems to be catching into it. And, and I remember a couple of years ago a conversation that, that we had uh, at that time with Rob McIsaac, who was still up at Mohawk, uh, and, and it was about what he called monetizing this, this ingenuity and these ideas. In other words, to, to get this stuff to market and understand that this can actually be a viable financial and economic entity, uh, uh, not just a, an innovative entity. Are we there yet? Have we, have we put that missing piece to that puzzle? Definitely. I think that's uh, one of the better things that happened over the last few years is that, you know, in the past you had people you know, coming up with innovations, but not necessarily, not necessarily knowing how to monetize them. So, you know, the old story is kind of a, a scientist invents some kind of widget, and they immediately think, well, I made this widget, I should, I should sell widgets. But that might not be the best way to monetize it. The, the way to monetize it might be to uh, sell a service that uses that widget. So maybe it's a better way of, I don't know, mowing lawns or getting rid of insects or whatever it is. Um, but there might be different ways of monetizing that product or that innovation that somebody's come up with and there's been a lot of because of the mentorship because of the innovation factory because of the things that are going on um there's been a big transition to helping those people with the innovations actually to monetize them and to figure out that that step of the process the other element to this is, is like you say, with with uh, people like Dave Carter at the Innovation Factory and so many others on that staff, uh, to be able to go to these innovative people that, with these new ideas and say, knock on that door. You should be talking to this person here. They might be able to help you. Uh, that that direction is key, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A lot of times it's funny. To make something happen, they just need the right connections, right? Um, that's, that's actually why a lot of times people go to places like Silicon Valley or like New York is because it's just a hub of connections. When we have regional innovation centers and these different support structures like Mohawk Colleges, Technology Access Center for Digital Health, when we have these, these pieces of infrastructure, you've got this hub of connections where, you know, Innovation Factory is connected to thousands of people. Uh, Medic is connected to, you know, a thousand healthcare innovators around the world. So um, when you have those hubs of connections that are able to put people in touch with their potential customers, that's definitely a key part to allowing them to, to scale their business. What about the potential for growth in these situations? I, I can remember the first year that uh, the Lions Lair competition was held, uh, and, and, and the winners were guys uh, from Weaver Apps. And, and, and at that time, I think they only had like four guys, four, four people working in the, in the company right now. I mean, they have grown incredibly over the last number of years and, and become a worldwide entity right now, all from a simple idea and, and a simple conclusion that, uh, you know, when, when they explored the idea of developing apps, they were told, well, it's very costly, you can't do that. And they said, well... Maybe no, it doesn't have to be costly. We 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 found a better way to do this, uh, and the business has grown. And, and we saw this with Mabel's labels and with other ones, because the question a lot of folks are always going to ask here, Kevin, is that's all well and good for those six or eight people in that company or the six or eight people over here, but is this sustainable to try to grow the the local economy? And, and what's the answer to that? Yes, it is, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. I think that's very important because. With the decline of manufacturing, which is kind of hard to reverse due to automation and due to outsourcing and whatnot, um, we kind of need to replace that with something. And technology is creating all kinds of jobs. Like I have a job board on my website, Software Hamilton, where we have hundreds of jobs a year posted, and most of these companies are having a hard time finding talent to fill them. Um, at the same time, in our elementary schools and our high schools, the teaching of computer programming, which is kind of like it's kind of like the new manufacturing. It's kind of like the new essential skill for the 21st century. The teaching of computer programming is very sporadic, um, and it's, it's not quite as, uh, as strong as I'd like to see it be. Um, and I think really a key part to growing this industry further is going to be engaging the whole city. We want kids to grow up in Hamilton and think, I can work at a great tech company and get a great job one day. Um, you know, there was a story that, you know, Jim Perry used to look across you know, Jim Perry, the comedian, he's looking mm -hmm. across from Burlington at the Hamilton DeFasco and think that's where the great jobs are. 
I don't know if kids growing up in Hamilton think that today, but I want them to think that. I want them to think that about the technology industry in particular. Um, and there's some programming we've got to kind of to do that. We've got something called Hamilton Code Club. That's a program by IEC Hamilton. That is solving this problem by having uh, mentors and like volunteer mentors from the community and Mohawk College co-op students visit elementary schools and teach early computer programming skills in kind of a fun club setting. Um, and that's something that it, it's, it's gone wonderful. I think we're looking at uh, 35 to 40 schools this year, and um, it's been a great program that IEC Hamilton has led to help solve that problem because it is a tricky problem. A lot of teachers never learned computer programming themselves growing up, so how are they supposed to teach it to all these kids? So uh, Hamilton Code Club, you know, it gets these mentors into schools to teach computer programming. It helps to solve that problem of we want to get the whole city thinking about I want to be a technology worker one day when I grow up and I want to go through my college and I want to start a company and I want to grow it in Hamilton. Because the common story I've heard from an awful lot of these innovators that we've talked about, uh, and you've mentioned two or three of them in, in our conversation here this morning, is uh, we, we can't find qualified people. I mean, we want to expand and, and we're looking for, for a workforce right now. Uh, and, and I know that in other parts of the world, for instance, even over in, in the UK, uh, they start teaching coding in grade four, grade five, I think it is. And, and in Scandinavia and in many European countries, same sort of situation. So we, we've got a little catching up to do, don't we? Well, we've got big catching up to do. It's, it's amazing. Um, some, some countries like South Korea and that, they've done an amazing job where it's integrated into the, into the entire curriculum every year. And they will pay, it'll pay nice dividends for them, you know, even 10 years from now. And we need to seriously start looking at the same thing. I mean, enrollment is up in the technology programs at Mohawk. And at McMaster, um, they have a bit of a captain enrollment, but their entrance average is way up. So demand is way up for the, the programming, which is a good thing. But if you look at the scale of the job losses in traditional areas like manufacturing and the scale of the job shortages in areas like technology, we don't have nearly the scale that we need to uh, really engage uh, you know, entire cities like, like Hamilton in that sector. Well, and I know that we have facilities here. I mean, Mohawk College is, is once again, of course, the top uh, retraining college in, in Ontario, and, and we should be proud of that. Uh, so if there are people that are already in the workforce that are being displaced because of, of some of the things that are happening, uh, there's always that possibility. But the, the much easier problem and a way to solve the problem, rather, would be to start getting them developed and, and trained into that early so they can move right into that sector right out of their, their educational processes. Definitely. Uh, it's, it's actually grade six, seven, eight, they say it is the, the key age where if people get exposure to technology and computer programming, then they're far more likely to take it in high school and far more likely to go on and study it in uh, university and college. So it's really critical that we reach them, we reach them when they're young, because if we wait until they're in high school, a lot of times it's too late. A lot of times they've kind of decided on their career path. Um, and if they don't have the exposure to it early on, they don't find that they have the, the confidence to pursue it. So yes, it's the early, early uh, exposure to computer programming and, and these kinds of technology skills that, that's critical. And, and without trying to sound too dramatic, this is not just a fad. This is the future we're talking about. Definitely. I think it's, it's, a, it's the 21st century skill. I mean, there's reports showing that something like, the, the numbers are obscene, something like 50% of jobs are vulnerable to computerization. You see things like Uber, you see things like, um, you know, Airbnb and all these kinds of services that uh, are all about, you know, connecting people and, and essentially um, are a threat to a lot of jobs. And if, if we don't prepare for that in advance, that's going to hit us pretty hard. Um, it, it is a wave that's coming. It, it's, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate in some sense, but I mean, you know, if you go back historically, I mean, there's always been this kind of disruption. People used to work on typewriters and then that got replaced by, you know, other uh, forms of work, right? So, the, the types of jobs that are going away, they'll be replaced uh, by new jobs, I'm confident, and they're going to look a lot like technology jobs. They're going to look a lot like uh, coding jobs with uh, with a lot of creative elements to them. There's a famous quote from Henry Ford, of course, the, the, one of the most brilliant innovators of the 20th century, that said, if I listen to what people asked for, I'd just be building more horse and buggies. Uh, you know, you've got to be innovative, and that seems to be what's happening here. And, and, and I guess the, the, the thoughtful thing to do here is to try to catch that wave. Are, are we diverse enough, though? I mean, we put all our eggs in the, in the manufacturing basket in the early part of the 20th century here in Hamilton, Kevin, and, and it, it, it eventually came back to bite us because, obviously, when that sector started to, to, to move forward with, with advanced manufacturing, 
manufacturing and things of that nature. There was huge job loss, and, and there was no other place to go right now. But I'm looking at some of the startups and some of the companies here, and you've just talked about six or seven of them right now. And, and they're not just all apps. They're not just all tech companies. It seems as if we're developing that diversity within that sector now. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's really across the board uh, kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, educational technology. There's some video game companies. There's a lot of digital health. Digital health is probably going to be uh, a key part of whatever identity emerges in Hamilton. Um, there's e-commerce companies. So there's, you know, there's an expression that software is eating the world, and that it's this idea that it's disrupting industries across the board. So I think that, you know, within the scope of innovation and technology uh, startups that are building our kind of new economy, um, they're definitely attacking like all these different different market segments. And I think that'll help us in terms of all our eggs won't be in one basket next time in, in terms of any kind of a downturn of that. So um, I, I think in terms of that, I think, we're, I think we're safer now than we were in the past. You mentioned about the shortcoming with coding and, and trying to get younger students involved in that as well. Is that dialogue ongoing between boards of education here locally and, and Mohawk and McMaster? It's definitely something that's happening, and and you know IEC Hamilton has really led the way with the, the Hamilton Code Club program. So that is a dialogue that's happening. I mean, that said, I mean I think education is is a provincial issue, and I think hopefully eventually what we see is some leadership from the province in that in that regard. I know they announced some improvements uh, earlier or, or later last year, actually, but I think what we really need is something more similar to what we see in other countries, which is a, a commitment to teach it every single year. Um, you know, from the time they're four or five all the way through high school, uh, we need that kind of a commitment to, to really uh, push it. But I think locally those conversations are happening. And at the level of, you know, a nonprofit organization that's, um, you know, doing amazing work, we're doing what we can. Um, but we really need provincial leadership to, to take it to the next level. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The look ahead to 2017 as we uh, embark on a brand new year uh, with some trepidation, I might say, because of some of the things that are happening politically that are going to have an impact on what's going to be happening economically. And not just here in this country, but of course uh, with our neighbors to the south. There will be a, a new president sworn in on the 20th of January. And uh, there's a great deal of concern about what uh, the Trump presidency is going to do to not just the U.S. economy, but to the Canadian economy as well. Uh, we have uh, provincial governments here in this uh, side of the border that are enacting environmental policies, cap-and-trade policies. The federal government, of course, is is about to do the same sort of thing. And there are concerns raised about what economic impact that's going to have. Plus, we've just got the usual concerns about what's going to happen with trade agreements and things of that nature. So to that point, we are so pleased to welcome our good friend Steve Howes, adjunct professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and president of Millington and Associates uh, with us here in studio to talk about the year ahead and the impact it's going to have. Happy New Year, first of all. It's good to see you again. Happy New Year to you. You're a, you're a busy guy. I mean, you've got clients. I mean, the way your company has grown over the last little while, uh, other companies should be so lucky. I mean, I'm not every time. <laughs> where's Steve? Oh, he's in Vancouver. Always oh, over here. He's got here this time. Uh, things have gone well. It was a pretty good 2016 for you guys. It was great 2016, and uh, things have, are looking great for 17 as well. And I think uh, I take the other side of that coin. I think it's going to be a great year. I think there's a lot of positives coming into this year. Well, with some concern, though, about because we've talked about, we just did a segment in the last uh, hour with Kevin Brown from uh, Software Hamilton and Mohawk College. He's an instructor up there, uh, about the collaboration and the startups that are going on here. Now, you know about this firsthand because you started talking to me about this years ago when you were doing the master's course at the DeGroot School. You're teaching, uh, uh, and a lot of these people that we just talked about are former students of yours. Mm-hmm. So you saw this coming, didn't you? Absolutely. This this economy we were talking about it 10 years ago is actually going where it's supposed to be going. We're becoming an entrepreneurial town. We're becoming an incubator. You see buildings like Seedworks popping up where it's not one business in there, it's 22 businesses in there. And it's all these little architecture firms and engineering firms, and and they're all service-oriented. They're people that can provide a service to somebody as opposed to a widget maker or some kind of manufacturing. That's the future. And 
we, we need to encourage that. We need to keep driving that. I was listening to the, the previous guest, and, and he's right on the money. Like This is why people are moving here. This is why people are leaving Toronto and coming into this marketplace. Did you see this coming, uh, even 10 years ago when you were when you were starting this? I mean, you th- that's where the seed of that came from. I mean, Mohawk and McMaster and, and, and the DeGroote School and what was happening at McMaster and, of course, the Innovation Park here. Oh, yeah. Well, if you go back to 10, 12 years ago, that's when the concept of Innovation Park started to come together and and that was initially uh, generated in the business school as an as an idea of a way to start incubating businesses now incubators have been around for a long time it's not anything that was invented here but it was the mindset that we really needed to shift our focus because so much of what was talked about was how do we save Stelco jobs or how do we save DeFasco jobs and what's happening with Hamilton steel car and that just wasn't sustainable. It's not that those businesses can't survive, but there's no growth potential there for employment. And we needed to attract people. And we remember we talked about years ago, one of the unique things about Hamilton is language, is there are so many people here that can speak multiple languages. And that's a very powerful tool in the service industry. You, when you you, can I remember this. that conversation I had with you that, that many, many years ago, and you said, that's an asset. Some people said, oh, no, they, you know, English is a second language, and these people, some people speak this language. And and he says, that's great because it's an international market now. Exactly. And so you're seeing a lot of businesses uh, coming into this marketplace to get access to those people with those language skills and the ability to communicate around the world as opposed to be able to communicate with the people across the road. So our our focus on immigration as a, is basically how the city was built uh, has actually become an asset in second, third, and fourth generation because they're passing it along. They the Italian community and other communities, the kids actually can speak the language. And that is becoming a fantastic asset. And it opens up markets. If I'm an entrepreneur and I'm fluent in three languages, that really opens up what other markets that I can sell my product or my services in. And, and I've seen this as I've talked to some of these innovators, whether it's Mabel's Labels or Weaver Apps or wherever it's going to be, uh, and they talk about, the, well, I, we just got in and we're in Eastern Europe now. We're over here. And this, well, we've got a guy on staff that speaks uh, whatever that language might be or, or, or it's somebody who you know was from that area and before. That opens doors that we just didn't have before. Exactly. And and with the transportation changes and, and with the train coming into town, it, it allows... Hamilton to become more of a bedroom community. Um, and But it's not just Hamilton too, right? It's the region. If you look at the growth that's happened in Burlington, that's happened in Oakville, that's happened in Milton, all of these areas are not only growing as far as real estate and people, they're growing because of jobs. And there's a lot of businesses. Uh, PwC built that massive building in Oakville. Siemens built that massive operation right across from uh, Ford. And again, that's a service company. That's a company that's actually serving all over the world out of that building. And so as we see these changes, it creates more and more opportunity for our young people and also for our not-so-youngs that are willing to re-educate themselves and, and try something new. There was a time, uh, and I, I can remember because it wasn't that many years ago, when when Hamilton and Burlington look at each other as competitors. And, mm-hmm. you know, we want to grab that factory or we want to get that business. You know, Burlington wants it. No, Hamilton wants it. Uh, and, and, and it was a battle, obviously. And, and, and then there were other players, obviously KW and, and Toronto themselves, of course, the big monster down the highway for all of us. But what I'm sensing here, Steve, over the last couple of years, and we've seen this happen with the uh, the economic summits, the last couple of ones that, that have been held out at the RBG, cooperation and collaborative between Hamilton and Burlington. These two cities are partners now, thinking, look at everybody benefits if, if, if businesses come to this area, because as you say, there's so much intermingling between Hamilton and Burlington, residentially and commercially. Absolutely, and it's not only just Hamilton and Burlington. It, it's really become anything but Toronto. So you've got the Toronto core that is still the big driver of the economy. Then you have Ottawa, which is another major center as well as uh, the government town. But then you have the rest of southwestern Ontario, and it's becoming more of a united view as opposed to I live in Hamilton or I live in Burlington. It's 
my business is in southwestern Ontario, and I see this with clients all the time, is they're looking to move and, and expand, and they just view this entire region as their customer base and as their market. So they might have an office in Stony Creek, and as they grow, they move to Burlington. And as they grow more, they move to Milton. And then as they grow again, they might come back and end up in Ancaster. But that to them is just normal. It's this, this is my backyard. And so you could actually live in any of those communities and you're looking at a 15 minute drive to work. All right. So we've got a pretty good thing going here and things are starting to develop and, and you're feeling pretty bullish about 2017. Uh, Kevin Brown from, uh, from Mohawk and, and others I've talked to, uh, Dave Carter at the Innovation Factory, they're feeling pretty bullish about this. Uh, we don't want anybody messing this up. Uh, <laughs> but there are some extraneous factors and let's let's talk about a few of those as we go forward. And, and first and foremost, let's, let's talk about the new administration that's going to be happening in the states. During the election campaign, uh, there was an awful lot of talk about protectionism and tearing up trade deals and things of this nature uh, by who the, the now president-elect. And uh, there's a, a great deal of concern in the auto industry, uh, in the agricultural sector, and in many other sectors across this country right now, that if any of those policies come to fruition, they're going to have a, a, a huge negative effect on, on the Canadian economy. Let's, let's talk about, first of all, the possibility of some of those happening, and B, if they do happen, what kind of an impact it might have. Well, there, there's two ways to look at the U.S. economy. First and foremost, they're our largest trading partner. So if their economy is in the tank, we're in trouble. And since the, the, uh, the election and uh, the comedy that surrounded that, the U.S. economy is is going fantastic. The market has responded well. They're at all-time highs, and job creation is starting to go up. They're actually talking about uh, three interest rate increases, which is probably the best signal that we've seen that the economy in the U.S. is really turning around because all our interest rates are fictitiously low, uh, both in the U.S. and in Canada. On that so point, though, that's, interesting. that's key. It's interesting, though, because when you peel away the political rhetoric that always happens with political elections, and, and this one you know, ramped it up probably more than we've ever seen before, the U.S. economy has been chugging along pretty well for the last number of years. It's It's been going very steadily up yeah. for, for a number of years through the, I'd say, the second phase of the Obama administration. We saw some really good, positive uh, job creation, things like that. And it's even ticked up even higher since the election and the expectation it's going to go even even higher. But the second part is the trade aspect. And I'll use Ford as an example. Okay, yeah. Because uh, Ford came out and announced how they were supportive of the government. And in fact, they were looking at expanding a plant in Mexico. And they were approached by President-elect and his staff, who it was, who has any idea. And they've decided to know they're going to reinvest that money into their Detroit plant. And they want to be part of the solution. So we need to accept that. There definitely is going to be a migration of jobs back into the U.S. What's that going to do to the Canadian? And now, I, I, by the way, I should qualify what I'm about to say here, because I know you've reminded me in the past that there really is no Canadian auto industry. There, there, are, right. just, there are just Canadian, you know, entities of, of other auto industry. We get that. But there's a lot of people employed here in the auto industry. Uh, is there going to be pressure from this new administration with GM and with Ford and with Chrysler to say, okay, I want to repatriate some of those jobs back to the States? But remember, there's a lot of people em employed in the auto industry. Very few are employed in the manufacturing of the auto industry as opposed to the sales and service of the auto industry. That's the biggest part. They all get lumped together when people talk about how many jobs that exist in that particular industry. What we're talking about, and I think is a likely outcome, is will Oakville lose a shift uh, in the next four years? I'd say for sure. Uh, really? Will Oshawa lose a shift? For sure. Will they shut down completely? Highly unlikely. Uh, but what you'll see, and then companies like the Orlix of the world and that that make car parts, not only will they continue to make parts for the ones that are manufactured, but they sell a lot into the U.S. and, and make parts as, for as those. As the Stackpole from Ancaster. And Stackpole as well, right? And so those types of companies, that's where a lot of those jobs are as well. And so... Will we see more and more pressure? Absolutely. Um, but they are American companies, and, and we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. They're American companies that happen to set up a subsidiary here because there's a better business case to make a car here than in the U.S. 
as long as that's maintained, they'll keep making them here. But as soon as it makes better sense for them to move those jobs back to the U.S., they'll move them back. But when you, when you've got Trump suggesting that he's going to impose a thirty-five percent surtax uh, surcharge rather on, on General Motors uh, if for making cars off you know outside of the states and then bringing them back in to sell. Uh, and now he, I know he was focusing on Mexico when he said that. Exactly. But yeah. but how can he do that it, with, with NAFTA and with the Auto Pact? I mean, if he's, he's going to do it to Mexico, is he going to give Canada a pass? Because let's face, as as we've come to know, most of the cars that are manufactured here in Canada get shipped back to the states anyway. Right. So which means they would all be, you know, affected by this this alleged surcharge if it were to happen. Well, again, but it that's a huge leap, right? When you talk about the challenge in Mexico is the huge difference in labor costs, and and that's the argument. But it, you're looking at a business leader who's a politician versus a politician who's a politician. Saying that prompted Ford's response. GM threw a little hissy fit, but Ford's response was exactly what they're looking for is, you know, you're right. We had investment planned in Mexico this year. We're going to be part of the solution. We're going to invest in America. Uh, there was no tariff put in place. It just changed the conversation. There was a great comment on, on TV the other day, and it was, has anybody ever asked corporate America to move jobs back into the marketplace? Like, have the politicians ever just gone to them and bend a knee and said, can you bring them back? Is there a way we can work together? And we've talked for decades about how certain states in the U.S. do things uh, with tax incentives and things like that that bring huge amounts of jobs and growth in restaurants and everything else. So I, I think that's what you'll end up seeing, but you always got to come out with the bombastic. When, whenever you're offering, to, I sell companies uh, for my clients. The opening price is 10 times what we're going to get for it. Oh, you want to buy us? Well, you're going to have to pay this, and you're going to have to do this, and you're going to have to do that. That's negotiation, folks. That's the way the game is played. You're just not used to seeing the game played in the political world. The other element to this, too, from the political standpoint, which does have to be a factor here, is is the president of the United States cannot arbitrarily impose a surcharge on anything? I mean, it's done by the Congress, exactly. And and th those are the people from states like Michigan, Ohio, and some of the border states around there, New York State, that understand the value of cross border trade. Goes so I, I I'd be very surprised if they hopped on board something as drastic as what Trump is talking about. The the best thing I I would say to any Canadian business that does work in the U.S. is make sure you truly understand the American political system. The least powerful element of the three levels of the House, the Senate, and the President is the President. And it's designed that way on purpose so that one person does not have ultimate authority. So it's very different. Actually, the Canadian system is weaker in a lot of ways in that whatever the whim is of the prime minister or the premier, the rest of the party has to follow suit. The House and the Senate are completely independent. And quite often, as we saw during the Obama uh, and uh, Bill Clinton uh, eras, will do the exact opposite of whatever the president wants done. And so we have to be very cognizant that it's not our economy, it's not our political system, it's their economy and their political system. We are subservient to the U.S. economy. We make money off of them, and we want to do what we need to do. But you can't tear up an agreement that exists. You can open up a contract, but that means everything gets renegotiated. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.